This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Welcome to the Caldor Centre Conference 2017 on the Global Compacts on Refugees and Migrants. I would like to acknowledge the Bedigal people who are the traditional custodians of this land. And I would also like to pay my respects to the elders, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are present here today. Now, it's a great privilege for, for me to be here too today as the acting director of the Caldor Center for International Refugee Law during Jane McAdams' leave. Not, I see, that she's gone very far. <laughs> the center itself is, as many of you will know, a great initiative. It, we owe, it's one we owe to the kindness and the generosity of Andrew and Renata Caldor and to the fantastic support which we have here at UNSW from the law school, from colleagues with intersecting and complementary interests, and from the dean, Professor George Williams. As any of you will know who have ever been in touch with the center, we have a wonderful team which makes the task of acting director that much easier. Francis Boone and Kelly Newell, Madeleine Gleason and Claire Higgins, Lauren Martin and Sangeeta Pillai, as well as an amazing group of doctoral students keeping us always on our toes. And many of those too are here today and I hope you'll have an opportunity to meet them. It's their spirit, it's their commitment, it's the skills of this team which get days like today together and which make them so productive and so enjoyable, as I hope you'll find. We have, I think you'll see, a fascinating program. We're looking at initiatives which could certainly influence, and I hope positively, the world of refugees and migrants. I am particularly grateful to all those who've given their time as presenters, as panelists, as discussants, to you, as I'm sure you will be questioners, and chairs as well. But I'd also like to give particular thanks to our two keynote speakers, Professor Elizabeth Ferris and Ambassador David Donahue, both of whom have come a long way to be with us. I could not think of two better qualified, two better experienced people to open and close this conference. They have truly been there and seen it, and we are so very fortunate to have them with us. But first it falls to me to talk to the year in review a wonderfully ambiguous title. Which year? Well, let's start with 2017 and let's see if I can end up back here. And just looking at random within the last 12 months, what do we see? We see the UNHCR once again reviewing its position on climate change and disaster-related displacement, all the while pushing ahead as the lead on the comprehensive refugee response framework, its program of action, and what is hoped will emerge as the Global Compact for Refugees. We've seen, too, a team at Columbia University in New York launching a draft treaty, an idealistic treaty on global mobility. We've seen European countries increasingly perplexed and uncertain exactly where to take their agenda on migration. Violence in Central America continues to drive displacement into an increasingly hostile environment and there is still no end to the war in Syria. 
The Rohingya crisis in Myanmar, Bangladesh has resurged with all its potential for impact on the region and beyond. And nearer to home, of course, we have the, the never-ending controversy of those transported to Manus Island and Nauru, which none of those responsible appear to have either the wit or the courage to resolve. Christiana Figueres, former UN climate chief, said recently, and I quote, everyone gets paralyzed by bad news because they feel so helpless. The political philosopher J.R. Lucas saw another perspective, those what he called unassuageable feelings of guilt and the dissipation of effort and effectiveness that can come about from the sense that we are as much responsible for what we do not do as for what we do. And that's why I think each day we need to remind ourselves of the importance of cutting through that negative, of getting to effective action by focusing on that part of the whole where we can, perhaps we can, make a difference. And getting there, getting there in turn means knowing and understanding. In the words of a recent Guardian headline, they know the risks and still they come. And that is the lesson delivered so clearly through the tragedies of the Mediterranean, themselves repeated on seas and oceans near and far. It's a lesson which too many states either don't want to hear or can't imagine how to integrate it into policies and practices. But nevertheless, it's a lesson that must be learned. 22% of the Gambia's GDP is made up of remittances from their citizens abroad. For many other countries too, their people are a primary natural resource, sometimes their only natural resource. And when abroad, those people are an income stream as well. So sending them back may be right, a matter of right, but it also impoverishes twice over. And these dimensions, I suggest, cannot be ignored if we want truly to manage things well. The case of the Rohingya reminds us of the complex world we live in. At the root is the issue of statelessness, not just in the formal sense of being denied nationality as a matter of law, but in the day-to-day -day sense of being denied an identity in the land of one's birth and upbringing. But that route too, as we can see from history, is contested and religious differences join in with the politics of exclusion. And in supporting, as Western countries rightly do, Myanmar's democratic transition while they call for accountability for atrocities, shows us, I think, quite clearly also that something more than top-down diplomacy is going to be needed. So in many respects, uh, and in the challenges presented, 2017 is not so very different from any other year. Yet again, we can hear somewhere someone telling us that the international refugee is failing a politician perhaps looking to grind down the law in favor of power, or a, a well-meaning academic enthused with extravagant plans and formulae to remake the world. In each case, I suggest the basic premise upon which they rely is itself false, and witness to singular lack of historical awareness. For history tells us that providing protection and finding solutions for refugees has always been a struggle. And it is perhaps a perpetual struggle, forever pitting the visceral 
negative concerns of any community facing change against the positive, which is that common humanity, that resilience on which we've all drawn and which can, we can draw again. There is and always has been a dynamic at work here. It has its highs and it has its lows. And whether the line on the graph will show progress that we have done better over time, perhaps only a hundred year perspective will tell. And within that dynamic, there is always to the, the politics, international and domestic. At the international level, again, history shows us that humanitarianism can often be exploited for foreign policy goals. And at the domestic level, time and again, almost daily in the media, we find that it's the politics which pursues the wayward vote, which offers a return for media support or seeks profit from promoting apprehension and division. It's the politics that gets in the way of solutions. Now, as always, uh, any year can be the excuse to look back, not necessarily to rue the years between or to trot out the usual tropes about repeating the errors of the past or needing to learn, although I am rather fond of the line that says what we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. Rather, though, as today, looking back, I think, can be a refreshing reminder, both of where we've come from, the good and the bad, and of what we've achieved, which is generally a mixed bag. And this, in turn, can be our springboard, as I hope it will be today, our springboard for the future. And today's conference is precisely about that, looking ahead, building a principled institutional and cooperative base for humanitarian challenges to come, because they certainly will come. Looking back does indeed present a mixed picture. 40 years ago, 1977, witnessed the failure of states to agree on an international treaty on territorial asylum. 50 years ago, 1960, 1967, witnessed the signing of the protocol which universalized the international refugee protection regime. 100 years ago, it was a quite different world. On the 25th of October or 7th November in the new style of 1917, the Bolsheviks under Lenin led an armed rising in Petrograd, brought down Kerensky's provisional government and took control. And that momentous event 100 years ago led on to the Russian Civil War, to the creation of the Soviet Union in 1922 and to utter consternation. It disturbed the natural order and no other government at the time seemed willing to recognize at first or deal with this revolutionary regime whose origins and methods were at once so alien and so threatening. But the world never stands still, and it was the Russian refugees who were indeed the catalyst for action and collaboration in the then new League of Nations. It was the Soviets' early policies of denationalization, of stripping away citizenship, which underline the necessity of international protection for refugees and the necessity of cooperation in relieving their often desperate situation, in according them a legal status, in finding solutions, in preventing their return to harm. And the rest is history. It is nearly now 100 years that we can look back on of international law and organization. The origins lie in that consequence, or one consequence of the events of 1917, and of the greater tragedy, of course, that was the First World War and the collapse of empires which followed. But that history also tells us many other things as well. Friedhof Nansen, 
whose name you'll be familiar with, when he accepted to become High Commissioner for Refugees in September 1921, was already High Commissioner for Prisoners of War. That sounds an odd post, but you can imagine the context post-war post Europe. His repatriation efforts, facilitating movements, return movements from west to east and east to west, not only established his credibility as an interlocutor with the Soviets and other governments, but also meant that he was particularly well-placed to understand what would come about from the severe drought and famine which struck the Volga region and the Ukraine in 1921. With European countries facing the serious possibility of disease following in the footsteps of those displaced, desperate for food, Nansen stressed getting to grips with root causes. Stop the famine and you stop the migration, he advised. Stop the migration and you stop the epidemics. And that's exactly what they did. Successfully, with some help from the League and a great deal of help, from the American Relief Association under the directorship of Herbert Hoover. Now, these interconnecting factors, war, conflict, famine, migration, obvious as they are, still need to be borne in mind today, particularly, it seems to me, if states and international organizations are to think outside the box and to demonstrate the flexibility necessary to respond effectively and humanely to those without protection whether they are without protection as refugees, as internally displaced persons, as migrants regular or migrants irregular, as migrants in countries in crisis, as smuggled migrants or migrants victims of trafficking, and whether the drivers of displacement are conflict or persecution, economic underdevelopment and destitution, drought or famine, climate change or disaster. And during the 1920s, a lot was achieved, particularly and I find this interesting on the basis of non-binding agreements. The first instruments which states signed on to imposed upon them no obligations. They were recommendations for the most part and for the most part were rather effective. States took up the call to provide travel and identity documents for refugees. Employment was found for refugees. Children and those with disabilities were given particular attention. Loans were raised to finance resettlement and forcible returns were prevented. But what was lacking, what was lacking was a permanent total approach and this became only too apparent in the 1930s. It was precisely the unwillingness of states to deal with the political issues, the causes, and you can imagine what they were in 1933 onwards. To deal with the political causes, that the, the heart of displacement which led James MacDonald, the High Commissioner for Refugees coming from Germany, brackets Jewish and other close brackets, to resign in December 1935. And of course thereafter, again, the rest is history. But first it had to be war, politics by other means. And then it was the politics of the Cold War, which for decades thereafter captured that humanitarianism which seemed initially as if it might influence the self-interest of states. But since then, since the 1950s, the international refugee regime has become universalized, UNHCR, acting with the support of states and on behalf of the international community, has assumed a huge catalog of institutional responsibilities. But the politics, the politics, of course, have never gone away. And in a divided world, states remained apparently content as they had been in the 20s and 30s with ad hoc measures. They were content, it seems to me, to resist the obvious that refugees were not a temporary phenomenon, 
They were not an anomaly likely to resolve itself, but would require much more concerted action. And then, of course, coming up more closer to recent times, to complicate things still farther, the short-term gains offered by the falling away of Cold War politics were soon lost in a new politics of securitization in which, as we know only too well today, humanitarian need has become very much the exception. And where once they had been papered over in the interest of expediency, other gaps in the system of governance applicable to the movement of people between states now became only too apparent, for states had long since failed to put into place either rules or practices for sharing the international community's responsibility to provide protection and to find solutions more effectively and equitably. They had failed to see that migration itself is an international phenomenon requiring also principled cooperation and collaboration if it's to be managed humanely and equitably. And the international community of states continued to find itself unwilling or again just too perplexed or both to deal with the root causes of displacement, whether it were conflict and persecution or underdevelopment and economic destitution. Coming closer to home, we can see that not surprisingly and from time to time, these systemic failures have been exploited for self-interested reasons. They've allowed states to indulge in extremist unilateralist tendencies. And although I think them ultimately ineffectual and self-defeating, these unilateralist tendencies can and do mess with the elements of a regime which for all its faults nevertheless provides a principled framework for cooperation and accountability in protection and solutions. And it's into this imperfect working model that Australia threw a spanner or something worse. And it's with regret, but with no apology, that I make this critique, because having served here for the UNHCR back in the day, the Australian experience in dealing with refugees, including those arriving by boat, has always been a key element in my own professional development, and I know how much better we can do things here. But by intercepting asylum seekers, transporting them to Manus Island and Nauru, and banning any refugee among them from ever setting foot or finding here a solution to their search for refuge and protection, Australia chose not to play by the rules, unilaterally announcing, in effect, to the rest of the world that it would just have to pick up the pieces and pay the price. The world, not having been consulted, did not rush to Australia's assistance. After all, what was the refugee regime getting back in return? In exchange for indulging local concerns about boat arrivals, did Australia triple its financial contribution to UNHCR or offer to raise its refugee resettlement quota to 100,000 a year? No, nothing. Instead, this exceptionalism and the ill-thought-out policies that went with it have done, as we know only too well, untold harm to hundreds of victims and have damaged this country's credibility and reputation at a time now when it might have focused on and made a positive protection-oriented contribution to the global compacts on refugees and migration. But 2017 was not all bad by any means. Some things were learned and Europe certainly actually seems to have been on something of a learning curve, notwithstanding regular demands from some quarters for more control and more returns, despite decades of management failure in that regard. The EU, or 
elements within it sometimes seem quite wedded to the idea that the way ahead, or perhaps the way back, is through putting pressure on so-called sending and transit states, and by unilaterally imposing the so-called safe third country notion of someone else's responsibility, not ours, on non-EU countries. The European Commission's action plan from last July, for example, said absolutely nothing about addressing the drivers behind the movement of refugees and migrants, whether outside or even within the EU. And yet, digging a little deeper, there are indeed some hopeful signs. A much more nuanced approach, for example, figures in the joint statement issued in Paris on the 28th of August, which emerged from a meeting that brought together France, Germany, Italy, Spain, and the EU, together with Niger, Chad, and Libya. And their agenda was to address the challenges of migration and asylum, but it was a very significant engagement, it seems to me, of very different countries with very different interests, but nonetheless across a broad range of common issues. And their joint state, again, interestingly, their joint statement begins with key principles. They recognize these sending and receiving countries, front and center, that migration is a transnational phenomenon. It's not for any one state to deal with alone. It applies a long-term development approach. And in addition, and in particular, humanitarian protection needs and obligations must be taken into account. That means saving lives, just as it means combating smuggling and trafficking. It means improving human rights protection and the living conditions for migrants in so-called embarkation countries such as Libya. It does mean also boosting voluntary returns and resettlement for those in need of protection. But the package approach there at least acknowledges the sorts of issues which I raised when I referred to the situation of the Gambia. The package means attending to root causes. It means supporting the resilience of host economies, host communities along the migration routes. It means providing income streams and economic growth models, which are alternatives, viable alternatives to the smuggling business. And with Europe very much in mind, these states emphasized how also a new common European asylum system is needed to strike the right balance between responsibility and solidarity with those states which manage external borders. And that may well include, they suggested, a, an EU asylum agency, something which I think is long overdue to iron out inconsistent recognition rates and promote fairer distribution of refugees. Of course, there are non-compliant member states, which, although they signed up to certain common values, to solidarity, to fair sharing of responsibility, perhaps never wanted to know the meaning of words, their own histories notwithstanding. But the forward-looking approach, and indeed the European Commission's recommendation recent recommendation on increased resettlement, up to 50,000 a year with financial support. Its emphasis on a voluntary humanitarian admission scheme, enhancing legal pathways, is there on the agenda. It remains in contrast and, of course, in tension with the continuing emphasis on hitherto failed models of control and return. But we will just have to see how it works out. But at least the elements are there. And so to the global compacts. Are we halfway there? These are following up on the New York Declaration adopted in September 2016. And a lot of hope is vested in them, in both the Global Compact for Refugees and that for safe and orderly and regular migration. The Global Compacts, we can be sure, 
will not be a panacea for all the challenges which come with the movement of people between states. They will not solve the problems of refugees and migrants and those on the edge of displacement, or not all of them. There will inevitably be compromises, but with the ever elusive political will, if we can find it, with commitment, with good faith, they could well strengthen the architecture of response, if not all the details. But that in turn will fail, it seems to me, that objective of strengthening the architecture of response will fail unless protection is kept both front and center in what comes out. Protection is not the enemy, it's not the obstacle to effective management which some pretend. On the contrary, it leads the way, it shows what can and cannot be done, and it stands as the measure both of success and of accountability. And on that note, I'm happy to hand over to Andrew, who will be chairing the initial, the first session. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen.